Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. And we're going to finish up the section that we've been, we've been taking chunks of for, for a little while, this whole section of chapter 9, 10, and 11, this whole section all about Romans. Uh, we're going to finish that section up tonight. But it, it really is the end of a section. Boy, it, there's a lot that comes before it. And if we're going to understand where we are tonight, we kind of, again, have to understand where we've been. And so I want to take just a quick second and do a, a quick review of where we were, bring us up to speed, so that way we can all just kind of truck along together. So if you haven't been trucking along, you're going to be very grateful for this. If you've been here the whole time, you're going to be like, all right, Pastor Jeremy, I've heard it. Don't tune out, right? It's good. I want, when I talk to you guys, when I repeat these things, boy, when I see you grabbing coffee, you should be able to tell me what I taught tonight. So you can't say, I'm tired of hearing it, unless you can teach it back to me. Deal? Deal. Okay. You notice the way I said deal for you guys, too. <laughs> so Romans, man, beautiful book. I love the book of Romans. Uh, Paul took the first five chapters of Romans to really discuss the topic of justification, why we need to be justified, uh, how it is we are justified, that we're justified by uh, faith. We're, we're justified by grace, because of God's goodness. We're justified because we believe in the work of the cross. And so after Paul really thoroughly goes through justification, why we need it, how we get it, then he moves into the the discussion, the topic of sanctification in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And he really just unpacks for us these beautiful truths as Christians that really God saved us, but we aren't where he needs us to be yet, right? Wouldn't it be great if when we got saved, we never wrestled with sin ever again? Wouldn't it be great if once we got saved, boy, temptation never reared its ugly head. We never struggled ever again. That's just not the case. We still have this carnal nature, but we're free from sin. We're free from our carnal nature. We're free from the law, and we're free to live this new life that we have in Jesus by the power not of our flesh, not the power of our self-will, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul wraps up that section after the first five chapters, justification, the next three chapters, six, seven, and eight, sanctification. He wraps up the section of sanctification with just some mic drop promises that we can hold on to as Christians. That our future is secure in Christ, that presently everything that we're going through, he's working together for good, and all of our past sins have been dealt with. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But as you kind of truck along with Paul, as he's making this argument and teaching us all of the treasure and all the wonders that we have as Christians in Jesus, a couple questions just naturally bubble to the surface. And that first question is, well, well Lord, so now we're saved, We are your chosen people. What about your original chosen people? What about the Jewish people? Are you done with them? And if so, what does that mean for us? If God can set aside the Jewish people, if he can set aside Israel because they have blown it, because they have failed, well, then he could do the same thing with us as Christians. And so, you know, as we look at this section that's all about Israel, Boy, you know, we're not to check out as Christians because it's very important to our walk personally with Jesus the way that God interacts with the Jew, 
the way that God is not done with the Jew. Because in loving the Jewish people, well, he demonstrates his unconditional love for us. As he is faithful, even when the Jew is faithless, he demonstrates for us that he will do the same for us. And, you know, uh, chapter 9, as we got into the section of, of Israel, it, it dealt with, you know, Israel's past rejection of the Lord, of God. Israel, there's no doubt about it, they rejected God, they rejected Jesus, and Paul deals with that in, in chapter 9. But then in chapter 10, there's this beautiful ending to that chapter, where God says that his arms presently are open to Israel. That, that, that if they were to turn to him even now, and many do, that he would accept them with open arms. And now chapter 11 deals with the future of Israel. Chapter 9, their past failings and rejection. Chapter 10, God's openness to them even now, presently. Chapter 11 deals with God's future plan for his chosen people. And, uh, you know, God is not done with the Jew. Just, and it's so important for us to understand that because if you are a news junkie, boy, you know that Israel has been, Israel's always in the news. But as of late, Israel is really in the news. You don't even have to be a news junkie right now to know that there are big things going on in Israel. And so it's important to understand that God is not done with the Jew, that God has a plan for his people. They're his people. And we have spent a lot of time, uh, you know, Sky touched on it last Wednesday. I talked about it this last Sunday. Uh, I talked about it the Sunday before. Uh, you know, what makes God's people God's people when talking about the Jew? Uh, this, this, this demographic, this, this people group, the Jewish people, what makes them God's people? Well, they're God's people because God chose them to be his people. And we've talked a lot about the Abrahamic covenant. And so I'm not going to go into that again. We've talked about the promises that God made Abraham. We talked about the cutting of covenant how it was all on God and not on Abraham. And that's really the part I want you to know, that when we talk about the Abrahamic covenant, it really is a promise that God made to Abraham and his descendants that God would be their God, that they would be his people, that he would bless them with the land of, of Israel where there's the current contention currently. Uh, side note, parenthetically, when you see the argument that's taking place over the land, remember, you can go back to this text that is thousands and thousands and it's thousands of years old. And you can see uh, who really was the uh, original, quote unquote, uh, native peoples of that land. And it was Israel, not the Palestinian. I won't go down that rabbit trail because we will really spend the rest of the night there. But just know that, that God said, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And this is going to be your land. And I'm going to make you into a great nation, Abraham, who at the time had no kids. And the nations of the world will be blessed through you. Again, how are the nations of the world blessed through Abraham? Jesus. Jesus. The nations of the world will be blessed through you. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. It's all these unconditional promises that God gave to Abraham. He didn't choose the, the Israeli people didn't choose the Jew because they were something special, right? We, we, we know that. 
He didn't choose them because they were tall in stature or, or many in number or strong or smarter. He, he chose them, really, because he's good. To demonstrate his love and his mercy and his grace towards them. And, and, and those promises, boy, we look at those promises that God made Abraham. And those promises, again, are not contingent on their ability to be good. And again, I won't get into it. I'm tempted to, but I'm not going to. Just know that, that those promises that God made Abraham, they were based on God's merit and not Israel's merit, which is how we know that God is not done with the Jew, which is also why we are encouraged when we read through this, because we know that God's love for us isn't based on our merit. Right? I'll say that again. God's love is not based on our merit. Isn't that good? I'm so glad for that because I'm a loser, because I mess up, because I have issues. And if God's love was based on my merit and my ability to be the best Christian I could be, not that we don't strive for that, don't misunderstand me, but if it was, boy, we'd be toast. And so the Abrahamic covenant, God foreknew his people. He chose them because he is good. And you know, all of their failings, all of their faults, the fact that they didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, the fact that they are still rejecting God today, you got to understand that it's not like God was caught off guard. God wasn't like, oh man, I didn't see this one coming. He knew before there was ever an Abraham, before there was ever an Isaac, before there was ever a Jacob, before there was ever a nation Israel, that they would blow it. And he chose them anyways, again, to demonstrate his own love. And there's been so much that we have really gleaned from this section, so much application we've made to our own lives. But we've seen really how patient and long-suffering God really is. When we look at the way that God deals with Israel, boy, we really see demonstrated for us not only his love and his grace, but his patience. And the Bible tells us that, that God is patient with all of humanity, with us individually. Why? To give us time to repent and turn from our sin. Uh, the Bible tells us that that is his will for all to come to the saving knowledge of who his son Jesus is. The Bible tells us that God does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. But he desires for us to turn to him and trust him. Uh, you know, we've been encouraged that as we, you know, look at God's dealings with Israel, that his arms really are open to all. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what sins you have wrestled with. It doesn't matter what sins you're wrestling with currently. That God is available if you are willing to believe on him, the Bible says. And then we've been encouraged by the reality that when we do, when we put our trust in the Lord, when we believe with our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and rose three days later, boy, we see that that promise, again, that it's not hinging upon our ability, but it's because of God's goodness. And so lots of things that we have been encouraged by, that really God is faithful even when we are faithless. And so when we began to kind of look at this last chapter, chapter 11, again, dealing with the future of Israel, you know, God's plan for them in the future, Paul opens up chapter 11 with the question, rhetorical question, Paul's teaching style. Uh, you know, in the original Greek, it's, it's, it's no. When Paul says, 
is God done with the Jew? What does he say at the beginning of chapter 11? I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. God's not done with the Jew. And that's, that's really uh, Paul's final argument. God's not done with the Jew. And he uses these different pieces of evidence to support that claim. Now, we looked at the, two first, or the first two pieces of evidence on uh, Sunday morning. Uh, Paul used himself as that first piece of evidence. Paul says, if God was done with the Jew, hello. Paul says, I'm a Jew. I wouldn't be saved. So that's a pretty good piece of evidence that God is not done with the Jew because Paul is a Jew and Paul was saved. Second piece of evidence that Paul uses was the prophet Elijah. And, you know, we won't get into Elijah's story, but just know that in Elijah's day, God's people were very much uh, rebellious. They were very much living uh, a life that was not pleasing to the Lord. They were wrapped up in all sorts of idolatry and wicked stuff. And yet, it says that in Elijah's day, there was a remnant. There were 7,000 men, just like Elijah, who loved the Lord. So Paul could say, look, man, Israel turned their back on the Lord back then, and there were 7,000 that were saved. Paul looks to himself and says, hey, look, I'm a Jew. God saved me. He's not done with me. And then he's going to move on tonight. And we're going to see now that Paul uses us as an example. Us, the Gentiles, to show that God is not yet done with Jew. And that's where we'll pick up in uh, verse 11 of chapter 11 in the book of Romans. Paul says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So, again, Paul asks the same question. Have they fallen uh, to a place where they can't be redeemed? Have they stumbled beyond recovery? Again, it's a rhetorical question. Paul's not looking for an answer in the Greek. It emphatically would be no. It's more of a statement that they have not stumbled beyond which they can be recovered. So why would God allow the Jew to stumble in the first place if they were his chosen people? And we see there, there's a couple things going on here. First of all, it's salvation to the Gentiles, right? Through their fall, salvation was opened up to all the Gentiles. That's a pretty good deal, especially for us sitting in this room. I would bet that there's probably not a lot of us who are Jews in this room, so that's, that's good news for us. But if you are a Jew, it's good. Because through the salvation of the Gentile, Boy, the Jews would become jealous, and they, in turn, would be saved in the right timing. So it's through their fall that the Gentiles were saved. God, in his perfect plan, he, he understood that he, again, it didn't catch him off guard. He wasn't like, oh, man, the Jews, they rejected me. What am I going to do? No, he used their rebellion as part of his plan to save us. And so it says that we now provoke the Jews unto jealousy. Like, what is that all about? Now, do you remember when you were a kid? Now, you can see this demonstrated even today. You go to any children's birthday party where there happens to be a pinata taking place. 
Okay, you watch. If the children survive the actual opening of the pinata with the wooden stick or bat or whatever it is that you're using, if the adult survives who's doing the pinata, what happens? The candy goes all over, the kids get the candy, and then immediately there's a comparison that's taking place. Boy, one kid is sizing up his bag of candy and looking at that kid's bag. Hey, man, I want what they have. They have more. They have it better. They have it easier. And that is what we're supposed to do. You're saying, what? See, when the Jew looks upon the Gentile, you got to remember, the Jew, what is their religion all about? It's all about the do's and the don'ts and the rigidity of religiosity and legalism. Boy, you have to, you have to, you have to do this. You have to, I mean, you want to talk about a rigid religion. You try being a Jew on the Sabbath. I'm not talking ancient days. I'm talking today. They have rules regarding everything. But you know what? You're not allowed to wring out a washcloth on the Sabbath if you're a Jew because it resembles somehow shucking corn. You're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to go a certain distance from your house on the Sabbath. So they're kind of stuck in this one spot. And then there are all these modern questions, right? We're not to write letters, but can we text? We're not to walk upstairs, but what about escalators? I mean, seriously, down to these minute things are like, we can't do this. And so how are we, as Gentiles who have been saved, how are we to stir within the Jew jealousy? Well, when they look at us, Boy, they should be blown away. And here's this dirty, rotten, filthy scoundrel of a Gentile skipping down the street, free from his sins, enjoying this relationship with the Lord. Man, they didn't offer any sacrifices. They, they haven't participated in any religious rites. That guy's not even circumcised, and yet he's enjoying this wonderful relationship with the Lord. And that's the idea, that our walk with Jesus would be so rich that the Jew would look in and be like, I want a piece of that action. Now, as we consider that this evening, how are we doing in that area? Right? When people look at your walk with Jesus, when people look at my, their, my walk with Jesus, is there kind of sentiment, boy, I'm provoked to jealousy. I want some of that. Or are they just provoked? Do they look at your walk with Jesus and say, man, I, that's, there's something about that. Man, there's a peace and a love that that individual has that is just attractive. Or do they look at you and say, man, what happened to you today? Why are you the grumpiest person? I'd rather have a root canal than, than to sign up for whatever it is you got. And so often that's the way we can be. We can be the grumpiest people who are supposed to be the most joy-filled and I'm not saying that we ought to be, you know, perfect. And I'm not saying that we should be plastic and fake either. But, you know, I would wager that there are people in your life, if you're a Christian here tonight, that you can look back and it comes to mind those people who are just walking it, who had that love, had that peace, had that relationship. You're like, man, I want that. There's people in my life that I look back and say, man, it was a real encouragement and it, and it provoked me into jealousy. And let us be those people. Let us be those who are so full of Jesus that we provoke those around us to want Jesus more. And, and that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, man, uh, you've been saved to provoke the Jews unto jealousy that they might be saved 
as well. And he goes on to say, man, if by the Jews falling away from the Lord, the world is blessed, and we've been blessed. Imagine how amazing it's going to be when the Jews are saved. And if, if by their falling away, uh, uh, what, what does he say? By their falling away, the second part of that is uh, if the, reconciled. If by their falling away, the world has been reconciled. Boy, then if by their being saved, boy, it's like from death to life. It's a pretty uh, amazing thing. The Jews fell away and we found reconciliation. Not through the Jew, but through Jesus. The opportunity was made available to us. But what is this, this next part that Paul is talking about? That by their being saved, how much better will it be? What's the world going to look like when the Jew is saved? I'll let you think about that for just a second. What is the world going to look like when Israel is saved corporately as a nation? What's going to be going on in the world? Boy, Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning, baby. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be the millennial reign. That's that season that's coming up. It's going to be amazing when Jesus is sitting on the throne and ruling from Jerusalem. That's where he's going to establish his kingdom. If, by the way, you wonder why there's always such contention around that one tiny little piece of real estate, which, by the way, isn't much bigger than Siskiyou County, that's why. Because we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And, and Satan hates the idea that Jesus is going to rule and reign. And so he comes against that part of the world. But I, for one, I can't wait. And the older I get, the more news I watch, and the more I just can't wait for that time, that millennial reign, when Jesus rules and reigns. Can you imagine a government that is absolutely moral? that always does the right thing, that is just and upright, I can't either, honestly. But someday it will be a reality. And the Bible says that the world is going to enjoy peace and prosperity like we have never known. That all of nature will be at peace. That the lion will lay with the lamb. That kiddos will play with vipers and there will be no fear. That we will beat our plowshares or our weapons of war into plowshares. We'll, we'll, we'll melt down our F-22s and turn them into John Deere combines. Because there won't be any need for weapons of war. It's going to be, that's what the world is going to look like when the Jew is saved. So you think it's wonderful that we have been reconciled because the Jew is rejected. You just wait until the Jews uh, are, are saved. It's going to be an amazing thing. The world is going to be a, a great place. And so the, the argument from Paul here is first himself. Look at me. Hey, I'm a piece of evidence. As a Jew, I've been saved. Look at uh, what Elijah said in his day. Boy, Israel was a wreck and still there was a remnant. And he says, look at the Gentile. Uh, all the prophecies of the Gentiles would be saved. And through their salvation, boy, uh, the Lord is going to save uh, the Jew by causing them to be jealous. So uh, verse 16, as we continue on in, in, in Paul's argument, he says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. Uh, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being the wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root uh, and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root support you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. 
Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity. But towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So you say, whoa, what is Paul talking about now? So now he's just talking about uh, this, this principle uh, that, um, you know, this whole first fruit situation. Let's actually address that. What, what is Paul talking about when he is talking about this first fruit and uh, the lump? Uh, if the lump is holy, then uh, if the first fruit is holy, the whole lump is holy. Uh, what, what is Paul getting at? This whole idea is a very Jewish idea. And sometimes when you're reading a Jewish text, you have to kind of get in the Jewish mindset. And this would be just common knowledge to every Jew who was reading this. Even the early church was very familiar with what was going on in Judaism. But this was an offering, right? It was the heave offering. It was the first fruit offering. So when the nation of Israel was coming into the promised land, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Boy, the harvests were abundant. The livestock did great. But God said, don't forget where that blessing comes from. When you get into the land, the first harvest you make, you take the first part of that first harvest and you bake some cakes and you offer up to me the first fruits as a heave offering, as a reminder to you that this is the Lord's. God provided it. It's all the Lord's. His provision and blessing is something that we should remember. The first fruits, it was that offering made to the Lord. And when they made that offering, that first little cake, they said, all right, this is the first of the first, Lord. It belongs to you. We're recognizing your goodness and your blessing towards us. That first uh, offering would sanctify the whole entire harvest. That's the idea. That first cake would sanctify the whole uh, harvest. But it's interesting, as we think about this idea of offering up to the Lord the first fruits, the first part of our dough, uh, there is a connection and there is an application for us as New Testament believers, right? Because this isn't just a Jewish thing where the Jews, uh, the Lord said, hey, I want you to give me the first fruits of what you make. Because as Christians, what are we commanded to do? We're commanded to tithe, to give the Lord the first of our fruits, to, to recognize, Lord, the things that I have, you provided. The things I enjoy in my life, they belong to you. Lord, I recognize the things that you've blessed me with as just that, a blessing. And when we tithe, it keeps our, our, our heart right. So, so what does it mean to tithe? A tithe literally means just a tenth. That's it. The first tenth of what you make belongs to the Lord. That is the principle of the tithe. You say, man, 10% of my paycheck goes through? 10%? That's what the Lord says. 10%. And you say, man, that seems a little legalistic. Doesn't it? I thought we were saved by grace, and it's not. This is the first thing I want you to understand, is that tithing is not a means of salvation. You can't buy your way into heaven. It doesn't matter how much you give the Lord. But tithe is something that the Lord calls us to do as Christians. And it's something that was before the law. It's something that is in the law. And it's something we see after the law. Uh, you know, there in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham, well, he 
was in this series of battles with different kings. After everything is all wrapped up and, and going well, he meets with a, a, a foreign head of state, let's just call it, another king. This king, his name is Melchizedek. Now, here's the thing about Melchizedek there in Genesis chapter 14. He is an interesting, mysterious dude. You want to get off on a rabbit trail all by yourself? Study out who Melchizedek is. Uh, Melchizedek, he was this man. He was uh, the, the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem. The king of peace is literally what Jerusalem, Salem means. So he was the king of uh, peace. He was the, the priest of the, the most high God. He's a high priest. Well, that's an interesting combination. Who does that bring to mind? Who is the king of peace and the, the, the high priest? Jesus. Yeah. Uh, you read through Hebrews, and it talks about how Melchizedek has no beginning, and he has no end, no genealogy. And there, what does he give to Abraham at this meeting? Hmm. Bread and wine. Seems ringing any bells for anybody? Bread and wine? Pretty... Pretty symbolic in scriptures, the body and blood of Jesus. And here's the kicker. Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek, recognizes him. Now, there's some debate about whether uh, this is a Christophany, Jesus uh, really incarnate before he came as Jesus, or if this is a picture or type of Jesus. At least it's a type, a picture of Jesus. But it shows the tithe in play. A tenth was given. Then it's in the law. You can read through Deuteronomy. You can read through Numbers when it's talking about the harvest. It, they tithe on everything. Boy, you got the grapes came in. Boy, the Lord got a tenth of the, the grapes. The oil, the, the harvest, even your livestock. That was just the norm. Again, you're saying, God, and I'm recognizing this is yours. You're good. You're the one who blessed me. And then you go to Jesus' time after the law. And what do you see? Jesus talking with the Pharisees, calling them out. You guys are such hypocrites. Man, you guys don't, uh, you know, exhibit mercy or love or anything, but you tithe. This is how religious the Pharisees were. They would tithe their spices. When you go home, I want you to get the spices out of your cupboard. You know, All right, there's one grain of pepper for the Lord. Nine for me. One grain of pepper for the Lord. Nine for me. I mean, that's how they tithe. But they left off being merciful and loving. And Jesus said, man, you knuckleheads, you're trying to be religious, you should be about love and you should be about mercy and not leave off the tithing either. God's, Jesus said, man, he, Jesus, he, in his own words, said it was good for us to uh, tithe. So God, he says, I want you to give a tenth. And then you keep 90. Here's the, the reality it blows me away that God lets us really keep any. It's all his. He says, it's all mine. I'll let you keep 90% of what is mine. You say, well, I worked for it. Who gave you the ability to work? Well, it's my ingenuity. He, who gave you the ability to be ingenuitive? That's not a word, but I couldn't think of the word, so I made one up on the spot. I was honest about it. But where did all those things come from? Any of you business people out there ever fall into a deal? You're just like, whoa, how did that even happen? I'll tell you how it happened. It was the Lord. Right? So he says, it's all mine. I just want a tenth. But why? Why does God want a tenth of our money? Well, it's because the church needs your money. No, it's not. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. It's not because God needs it. It's because we need to give. See, it's a matter of our heart. It's good for my greedy little heart to remember that the things that I have aren't mine, but that I'm a steward of them. Uh, Luke 
12, 34. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Something happens. Uh, there's a, a reality check that comes into my life as I'm writing that tithe check to the Lord. That's right, Lord. Thank you. There's a gratitude that, that, that follows. There's a rightness. And Micah tells us that when we withhold the tithe, we're actually robbing from the Lord there in Micah 3. Haggai goes on to say uh, that when we hold back from the Lord, boy, we earn money and we put it into our pockets, but it's like our pockets have holes. They just, it just falls out. But then again, in uh, Malachi, the Lord says, I want you to try me in this one thing. Try me. Put this to the test and see if I don't bless your socks off. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> it's not really fun as a pastor to talk about tithing, right? Especially in a culture where money and the church, those two things, they've been so abused. And you have prosperity preachers telling people that if they send a check in, uh, you know, that they'll pray over you and you'll be healed. Or if you send a check in, all your dreams will come true. Or you can sow a, a seed check of $50 and then magically in your bank account, you'll receive $50,000. All the while, they're adding private jets to their fleet. That's all trash. But it doesn't negate the truth of the scripture. You hear me? So the Lord says, hey, this is important. It's important to keep your heart right. And here's the thing. If you think I'm self-serving in it, give somewhere else. I, I don't really care. But just give to the Lord. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, and God has been so good in this area in my life. When he says, test me in this area, and he means test me in this area. Man, when we are faithful, it's just an amazing thing. It's not like gambling. It's not like a get-rich-quick scheme. But there's a blessing in it, and it's the way that the Lord would have us to do it. And so uh, that is just the reality of what they were dealing with. That's what this whole idea of first fruits is. You give the first part to the Lord, the rest is blessed. And that's a principle that extends to us through the tithe. Super important for you guys to understand that. Again, this is not a self-serving thing. God doesn't need your money. Uh, but we need to give. It keeps our hearts right. And so this whole idea is that what is considered first contributes to the character of what is related to it. The cake and the harvest. Right? If the cake is blessed, then the harvest will be blessed. Then he goes on to talk about the olive tree, the roots and the branches. If the roots are holy then the branches that grow from it will be holy. So who are the first fruits and who are the, uh, who are the, the, the roots for the Jews? Right? It, it, we're, we're thinking in context of what Paul is talking about the Jews. He's, he's using this evidence of why the Jew is still saved. Well, the first fruits are the patriarchs. This is his next piece of evidence. Right? He used himself. He used what Elijah said. He used the Gentiles. And now he's using the patriarchs. Right? The patriarchs, they are the first fruits. Abraham and the promises that God made to Abraham. If God accepted Abraham, then God will accept the descendants of Abraham, those promises. Now, I'm not talking about universal salvation for Jews through their genealogy. We've gone over that over and over again, and I don't want to beat that dead horse. Uh, but it's that promise that God is keeping to Israel. It's evidence that God is going to keep that promise. That if he accepted the first lump, the rest is holy. Same with the roots. If the root is holy, then those who came after the root, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they will be holy also. It's those promises. And it's Paul's evidence that their stumbling as Israel, it's temporary. It's not forever. It's just for a minute. And then 
Paul goes into after establishing this idea, this first fruits, if the first bit was sanctified, then the whole lump will be sanctified. If the roots are holy, then all the branches will be holy. Well, he gets into this, I don't want to call it controversial waters, but really bothersome waters if you look at it the wrong way. And he starts talking about branches being broken off and other branches being grafted in. And then those branches being broken off if you're not careful. And then those other branches that were broken off being grafted in again, you're like, what's going on, Paul? We got a lot of breaking off and grafting in going on. Paul is using this analogy that the roots, that's the promises that God made to, to Abraham. And what grew out of that was the Jewish people, who God will honor the promise that he made to him because he is good. But there is a season right now where they have been broken off. The Jew, by and large, corporately, the majority, they are walking in unbelief. And if you are a Jew today, that's no guarantee that you are saved. And that's what Paul is talking about. That the, the, the people, group of Israel, corporately, they've been broken off. Why? That we might be grafted back in. But here's the thing. We have been grafted in. What have we been grafted into? And this is what I, I want you to hear me. I know I've been doing a lot of talking and, you know, it's easy to start to check out. But what have we as Christians, what family are we grafted into as Christians? We're grafted into that same root, to the Abrahamic uh, promises. We are descendants of Abraham. That's why it says uh, there in Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. Right? And so, what's Paul's point in all of this? for us, and that we should be aware of what's going on. Hey, don't boast. Don't be arrogant as Christians according to the Jew. Uh, don't think that you're special. Like, really, how is it possible for us as Christians to think we have something up on the family that we've been adopted into? Right? It's not right. Uh, he goes on to say, man, remember, you guys, you don't support the root. The root supports you. There is a, a spiritual gratitude that we owe uh, to the Jewish people. And God made his promises through Abraham that we are a part of through Jesus now. And so it's important that, that we understand that. And, uh, you know, because when we don't understand that, boy, there's all sorts of things that, that, that start to come into play. When we fail to acknowledge that reality, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But... Uh, the Gentiles have been grafted in, but there's that disturbing part. He says, hey, don't be haughty. Uh, they, the, the Jews were broken off because of unbelief. Uh, and you stand by faith, but, but don't be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. What does that mean? Does that mean if we don't watch it, that the Lord is going to break us off? That if we're not careful, then he's going to, cast us away? No. See, this is not a, a, a message of how we can lose our salvation. Again, I, I believe the Bible teaches clearly that we can't lose our salvation. So what's being spoken of here? So just like God was right in putting off the Jews for unbelief, but God could be right in putting the Gentiles off for unbelief as well. He'd be right in doing the same thing. And it is noteworthy to mention that in the last days, uh, there is a, a, a falling away of the Gentile church. Oh, we read in 1 Timothy, uh, we read in 2 Timothy, how there's going to be a falling away. 
I don't have time to, to go through it tonight, but, but check it out. It really is interesting. The things that we read there in 1 Timothy, the falling away of the Gentile church we see taking place even beginning in our day currently with the things that are going on concerning the LGBTQ movement, the, even the vegan movement, the uh, whole uh, global warming movement. It, it's interesting. You can start connecting some dots. I wish I had time to dig into that, but I, I really don't. And so this is not a passage that would support the idea that we can lose our salvation. It really isn't, because the key really is to, first of all, have a proper fear of God. That's what Paul says. He says, man, don't be haughty, but fear. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to respect and to honor and to love. Right? God is our father. He's our dad. He's our brother. Jesus is our friend, but he's our Lord our God and, and our master. Sometimes we get the Jesus is my homeboy sort of like thing going on where we forget the reverence and honor of the Lord. And it's important that we have that. But secondly, and most importantly, Paul says continue in his goodness. Right? If you're worried, boy, I don't want to be cut off and thrown into the fire and I don't want to lose my salvation. Now, listen, that's not what it's saying, first of all. But, but, but second of all, just, just stay in the goodness of God. That's what Paul says. How do we stay, continue in God's goodness? We continue in his grace. We continue in the fact that we can't earn God's love. We continue in the fact that it's according to his sacrifice and not our good deeds that we are saved. And the whole point of this section really is that the Jew can be grafted back in. Right? We can very easily get off into the weeds and, and misread some stuff, but Paul's point is that the Jew can be grafted in, and, and he will be. So he goes on to say, hey, don't be ignorant about this. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul tells us as Christians, hey, don't be ignorant of this mystery. Don't be ignorant that God is not done with the Jew. Don't be ignorant that he can graft them back in, and he will. Don't be ignorant that their fall was not uh, permanent and total, but it was temporary and partial. And why is it important that today, in 2023, that we aren't ignorant of this truth? Boy, look at the world and what's unfolding right now in Israel. When we are ignorant of these spiritual truths, boy, we're prone to pride, just like Paul warned us about, thinking that we're better than the Jew, that they're lost. Uh, ignorance leads to hate against the Jew. Do you know that anti-Semitism is on the rise? Anti-Semitism has risen 400% since the Hamas-Israeli war began. I mentioned it a couple Sundays ago. 400%. That is crazy. Because people are ignorant about what is going on over there. And, and it's clueless. You, you watch interviews of people at these Palestinian, pro-Palestinian uh, movements on college campuses and all over the place where they're shouting from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. Do you understand what that means? It means the annihilation of Israel altogether. And I won't get into it. We talked about it a couple Sundays ago. If you're curious how the history of that area unfolded, check out the teaching. It's on. There's lots of better teachings than mine online. Just look into it. Uh, but it's important that we understand what's going on. I was watching an interview today. Uh, my wife told me about it actually a couple days ago. She's a news junkie herself. Uh, but 
there were these protesters that were being interviewed. They were supporting Palestine. And uh, this was in London. And the, the guy doing the interview was just kind of asking, you know, well, what do you think about you know, Hamas in light of the attacks that took place on October 7th? And they're like, well, I don't really, I'm not sure that there's conclusive evidence that that really happened. Is that something that really happened? And you're just going, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Keep that girl away from, uh, you know, any water because she might just drown. It's like so clueless as to what's going on. And this is where you begin to hear these things that, you know, Israel, they're, they're occupiers, or occupiers and they're the colonizers and they're the aggressors and Ignorance is not a good thing when it comes to this issue. Paul says, don't be ignorant. Ignorance also leads to replacement theology that I've talked about. It is gaining traction in the church currently where Christians say God is done with the Jew. The promises that God has made to the Jewish people, they're not for them anymore. They're for us as Christians exclusively. I'm here to tell you that you cannot honestly study through the Bible and come to that conclusion. The only way you can come to that conclusion it is really if you are a post-tribulation in your eschatology because that's what you use to establish. And I won't go down that rabbit trail either because I'm trying to wrap up. But just know that you can't read through the Bible honestly and come to that conclusion. Just, just check it out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. But Paul goes on to talk about Israel's blindness, that she will be blind. And we talked about Israel's blindness on Sunday. If you're curious about that, you'll have to go back and, and listen to that. But Israel is blind for a season. That is, there's a hardness. There's an understanding that she won't have. But Israel's blindness has an expiration date. Israel's blindness comes to an end, and Paul tells us when it comes to an end, uh, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness is in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Israel will remain blind until the fullness of the Gentiles come. Now, what is the fullness of the Gentiles? What does that mean? It's exactly what it sounds like. That there is a magic number of Gentiles who will be saved. And when that last Gentile is saved, boom, things are going to change. And that really is when the rapture is going to happen. The church is raptured. That ushers in a seven-year period of hell on earth where God's wrath is poured out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And it's during that time that Israel will be saved halfway through that tribulation period. See, everything is up in arms and crazy in Israel right now. The world has been looking for an answer for the conflict in the Middle East forever. But there's going to be a man who comes on the scene who's going to have all the right answers. And they're going to hold him up and he's going to make a peace treaty with with Israel. Boy, he's going to be the, the best thing since sliced bread. But he's going to go back on his word. And halfway through the tribulation period, He's going to go into the temple and he's going to claim himself to be God. And the Jews' eyes will be opened. They'll go through a terrible time, three and a half years. But when Jesus comes back, and you can read through Zechariah 12 and 13. Check it out, make note of it. And it describes what is going to happen to Israel when they see Jesus for who he is. They're going to see the wounds that are on his hands and they're going to weep. Uh, they're going to say, well, where did you get those scars? I got them from my friends. They're going to see nationally. Their eyes are going to be opened, and they are going to to be saved. Uh, But not until the last Gentile is saved. And when what what is that number? Who knows? Who is that last person that could be saved? Maybe you're in here tonight. You just need to hurry up and get saved. (laughs) 
And we can all just be done with this mess. But that is what's going to trigger that next thing because God's not going to leave a single one behind. Right? He left the 99 to find the one. He's going to gather in all 100. But when the 100th is gathered in, boy, things are going to begin to, to unfold. Uh, and then we'll just we'll, we'll finish up this chapter because we have to tonight. We've got to buckle up. We can't be stuck here on Sunday. Not that we're stuck, but we can't uh, divide this up or it just won't make sense. Verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy uh, shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has commanded or committed pardon me, them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So in 28 through 32, Paul just kind of summarizes the relationship between God and the Jew and God and the Gentile. That the, the Jew, boy, they, they were an enemy to the gospel. They didn't believe, but through that, the Gentile was saved. But then through uh, the Gentile, the Jew will be saved also. And, and it's this whole plan of God's that is unfolding that Paul is just sharing with us. I think about it for a minute. God presented himself to the Jewish people. They completely reject Jesus. But instead of just throwing them away, God uses that to save the Gentile people. And instead of just throwing the Jew away, he uses their salvation to cause the Jews to become jealous that they might be saved, that in the end, all are saved. And you just stand back and say, whoa, God, you are amazing. And that's our response tonight. That's how I want us to leave this place, to be just completely blown away and standing in awe of God's goodness, his mercy, his love, and his greatness. Boy, that, that he can work all that out. And, and, and man, God is beyond our finding out. He's beyond. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. Oh, I'm so glad for that. Man, God is amazing. And this last thing that Paul kind of shares with us in 11 before he closes out, he says, for of him and through him and to him are all things. This whole plan, this whole, this whole thing that we are, are walking out, this life that we have, the plan that God has for salvation, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his love, his long-suffering, and it, it's his plan. It's of him. And he's the one who put it together. Even if we did understand it, he's the only one who can implement it. And he implements it for his sake. And we're blessed in the process. And God is so good. The next time you're faced with a problem in your life, something that we just say, boy, this is so complex. I don't see how, Lord, this is going to work out. I know your word says that you're working all things together for good. But how, Lord, is this possibly going to, to work out? 
Consider God's plan. Consider God's hugeness. Consider God's glory. Consider God's love and mercy demonstrated in the chapters that we've read about the Jew. And just be flat out encouraged by how amazing God is. Amen? So Lord, we love you. Thank you so much. That as we've studied through this chapter, we've been so encouraged. As we've studied through this section, Lord, we've been so encouraged. Lord, this book, if I'm honest, has been so encouraging. But to really know, Lord, to, to let this fact, this truth sink in, that we belong to you not according to our own strength or our own merit, but according to your goodness. That our part is to believe and to trust that you've done all the work required. What a beautiful thing that is. And as we stand back and, and look at just the, the mastery of your plan, Lord, who has given you counsel? Who do you owe anything to? Lord, you're so amazing. And I pray that we would leave this place with a respect, with an awe, with a hunger, with an appreciation, with a gratitude, Lord, for who you are in our lives. We love you. And I just thank you, Lord, that you are going to see us through. Not because we're good enough, not because we've earned it, but because you're good and you're God. As we go our way, may we be mindful of that reality and the fact that you've got us. You've got a plan for us. Just like you had a plan for Israel, you have a plan for Israel. You have a plan for us. And when we're tempted to get sketched out and to panic and be filled with anxiety because we're not sure how things are going to work out, Lord, remind us that you are working things out. We love you. We thank you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.